Hello and welcome back to the show. In this special retrospective episode, I sit down with one of you, that is one of my listeners, and we reflect on this year's episodes and the podcast more generally. In this episode, for the first time ever, I am the guest and my listener is the host. Let me briefly share how this situation came to pass. I thought 2023 was the show's best year, so I wanted to reflect on the specific episodes this year as well as the broader lessons that I learned. I feel like there's a lot of knowledge I've gathered in my travels, but I haven't had a forum in which to share it. So it occurred to me that I should get someone to interview me, but I don't have a producer or a partner. This is a one-man show. So who should run the interview? Well, about a month ago, I invited listeners of the show to apply to be my interviewer, and there were many excellent applications from around the world. I shortlisted the 10 best and did calls with all 10 of those listeners. Now, podcasting can be a very unidirectional thing, so finally getting to speak with members of this audience was really enjoyable, one of the highlights of the year for me. And happily, I was delighted to pick one of them to be my interviewer. You're about to meet DJ Thornton, who is an economics PhD student based in Sydney. Fortunately, as I am also in Sydney, that meant that we could record this in person, which we did on the 28th of December. I put this interview entirely in DJ's hands. He wrote the questions, I didn't see them beforehand, and he did an excellent job. So thank you, DJ, for making this an enjoyable and reflective experience. And thank you to all of you, my listeners, for joining me in 2023. Now, please enjoy this retrospective with DJ Thornton. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. So let's begin by having you just like briefly mention who you are and maybe how you found the show. Sure, happy to. Uh, So my name is DJ Thornton. I am a PhD student in economics. I found the show in 2021. I was asked to lecture a course on uh, economic perspectives and uh, I was looking for a good podcast on Keynes and I came across your interview with Lord Robert Skidelsky. I've been a listener ever since. That was a a good chat, that one. Yeah, it was good. Well, it converted me to becoming a listener. <laughs> it was good. Uh, yeah, so look, it's an honor to be sitting in the host chair today. Yep. Um, there's lots of questions that I have for you, but before we, we get into that, I actually wanted to start by going back uh, an entire year. Since we're reflecting on the year, I thought we might go back uh, an entire year to the, the end of last year. At the end of last mm-hmm. year, you, your final interview was with Tyler Cowen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talked about talent. You talked, among other things, about emergent ventures. Yep. Um, and then the podcast took a three and a half month hiatus. Um, <laughs> of course, you weren't just resting in those three and a half months. There was a lot happening. And then you kicked off the year in the middle of April with your interview with Danny Kahneman. So uh, I thought maybe you could just start by telling us a little bit about the lead up to uh, that very first interview of the year. Yeah. Wow. What a great question. So a few things happened in the lead up. Firstly, I won the Emergent Ventures grant. Yep from Tyler and the Makeda Center at George Mason University. Secondly, I was actually recording podcasts that weren't published until I think April was when the first one was published. Yep. So yeah, I did April. a trip to the United States in February where I recorded the podcast with Kahneman, the podcast with Catalan Carrico, and another one which hasn't been published yet. And then I was just like working my day job, which was very time consuming. So working at a tech startup, I figure it's always important to prioritize that obligation above anything else when you're, you know, working for someone. Yeah. Um, so the podcast took you know, the backseat. backseat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. 
Fair enough. Oh, we should talk about the Emergent Ventures grant, but maybe we'll yeah. get there a little bit later. Sure. Um, so you, you launched on, on April 14th with this interview with, with Danny Carmen. And in the preface yeah. to that very first episode, uh, you said that you're going to be posting episodes every two weeks this year. Did I? So you did. You did. Oh <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I'm holding you accountable. Um, so uh, what, what, I mean, look, you, you had 12 interviews this year, if you count this one. Yeah. Um, and that's obviously impressive by any standards. But yeah. what were you a little over optimistic? Did you have the wrong reference class to use uh, <laughs> Kahneman's terminology? Oh, wow. What a, what a mean interview. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's a I'll good say, question. I'll say nice things too. I <laughs> so I think I need to just like screw the frequency going forward. Just like not, <laughs> not publicly commit to anything and people will just get the episodes when they come. Fair so enough. that's my... I'm, that's my new commitment. No frequency. <laughs> it's not much of a commitment. <laughs> I thought two weeks was the right cadence, but again, the day job gets in the way and trying to do all the interviews in person means that you need to travel a lot for them as well. And so I can't produce them as readily as if I was just doing them all over Zoom or Skype. Yep. You'd like to plan these big trips, like Viking raids over <laughs> to America, get some interviews and come back. For sure. I mean, did, did the Emergent Ventures grant give you a little bit of slack in terms of your day job or not really? No, not really. I mean, like you, you apply more for the network and the street cred, not for the money. It's not like a, like it's generous. It helps with the podcast, helps with the operational costs, but it's not like a life-changing amount of money and it's not money that I can like personally live off. Fair enough. Yeah. But you, you did uh, stop your day job much later in the year. Yeah. Is that right? So, so are you just focusing on the pod now? or Yeah. So this might be news to many listeners, but as of mid-September, I've been just doing the podcast. That, that will probably change at some point yeah. because ultimately I see it as part of a portfolio of different activities. I have too many interests and ambitions <laughs> to like just do that. But yeah, over the last few months and over the next few months going forward, it's kind of the main focus. Cool. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was going to ask you to uh, kind of give a prediction of how many episodes you thought you might get out in 2024. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, given your that, lack of contrary, commitment. That's contrary to my new commitment. <laughs> that is contrary. I mean, you want to give us a ballpark? <laughs> um, I would imagine between like 10 and 20. Yeah. Okay. That's, yeah. that's pretty reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I do want to dive into kind of some of the episodes and the themes that, that were uh, kind of woven throughout yeah. the year. Before we get there, I thought I might ask you a little bit about uh, interviewing and guest selection a little bit more generally. Mm -hmm. So uh, first off, you have a lot of um, very high profile guests on the show, obviously. And uh, I think- Including myself. <laughs> including, yeah, that's right. You're up with the greats. Um, I, I was wondering first off how you choose which guests you're going to reach out to in the first place. And then what's your actual kind of conversion rate on those cold emails? Right. The conversion rate's pretty good. Ballpark, maybe like 50%. Wow. I choose the guests first and foremost on a selfish criterion of just who am I interested in? Like, who am I reading? Who do I want to learn more from? Yeah. Who do I want to have a conversation with? Who do I want to meet uh, in person? Because that, that can obviously be quite fun. Secondly, there's just the constraint of, okay, who then actually agrees to do the podcast? But with a 50% conversion rate, that's pretty good. And then I guess thirdly, there's also some, what would you call it, programming considerations. So thinking about the balance of topics usually. So not wanting to go like 
too heavy on any one thing. Sure. I think in the past, the show featured economics quite heavily and yeah. maybe I only had like one economist this year, Ruggeram and Rajan. Oh, and of course, Shruti, Shruti <laughs> well, as well. I mean, Ken Henry as well. If you, Oh yeah, and Ken, okay, wow. <laughs> so I had three economists Doesn't remember his own episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but, but that's probably a, a lower percentage than it, previous yeah, years. So. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because you, you, you say you should you say you choose the guests that you kind of want to meet in person. Uh, do, do you worry about kind of meeting your intellectual heroes? <laughs> Have you been disappointed? No, not really. Not really. I mean, to be clear, I don't, that's not like the, the, the overwhelming kind of consideration to sure. me, like fanboying different people and like <laughs> getting selfies and autographs and stuff. Nice. But no, I've been pretty universally impressed by everyone I've met. That's nice. Well, you, you hit a personal best or maybe a podcast best for, for the show this year, you had a four and a half hour long episode, yeah. two four and a half hour long episodes, one with, with Ken Henry and then another with Stephen Wolfram. Yeah. Um, so uh, the, the, the first thing I want to ask is how exactly do you, I mean, I imagine you're not getting your guests to agree to block out half the day for a podcast when you when you ask them if they want to come on the show. Mm. So do you think that that once they get in the room with you, the reason that they're staying on is because they're just sort of enjoying the depth of the conversation with you? Or, I mean, are they finding it sort of beneficial to them? Or what do you think that the reason is that you get so much time from these people? I think the conversation with both Ken and Stephen went well. And so they were happy to, I mean, you actually hear that in, at least in the Wolfram one, he's like, no, no, keep going. Keep yeah, going. yeah, he's, he's like great. crunching a carrot <laughs> yeah, or something. Like, yeah. yeah. He's eating some chocolate or oh, something. Some chocolate, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you can oh, hear him crunching in the background, yeah. yeah. And that was recorded on a Saturday afternoon in Concord. Okay. And so I guess he didn't have any like hard stop or at least it didn't for a while. So we were yeah. recording on the right day. And then with Ken, I think that might have been a Wednesday, but it was kind of at the end of the day. He actually had to move, partway through the episode, he had to move a call which I felt kind of bad about, but he was like, no, it's, it's fine. Like it's, I don't think it was a crucial call or anything. So yeah, I guess I don't, I don't plan for it to go that long. I'll often try to calculate how many questions I need based on their average response length in previous interviews. Okay. So I'll, I'll take, I don't know, maybe the three most recent interviews mm-hmm. or well, however many interviews they've done because sometimes they haven't done that many. Look at how many questions the interviewer asked and how long their answers were, calculate some kind of average, mm-hmm. work out how long I have with them and then just calculate how many questions I should be aiming for. But but sometimes it just doesn't work out like that. <laughs> I don't know why. So with with Ken and Wolfram, about an hour into the interview, I realized like, oh, shit, we've only got like one hour left and I've only got through 20% of my questions. So you're asking them for two hours then? Yeah, I think it was roughly that in both those cases. Yeah. Um, and then, then I'll have to be like, Hey, sorry, do you mind if we keep going a bit longer? And yeah, I feel like that's usually the right thing to do just because I'm pretty confident I've got some really good questions to ask them and we probably won't get this opportunity again, at least for a very long time. And because they'd enjoyed the question so far, it was, yeah, yeah. Was something we could do in those cases. Yeah. That's funny. Cause that's the method that you describe of how many questions you ask is exactly how I worked out how many questions I was going to ask you today or at least oh, how many yes. I was going to prep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think they also, in those two particular cases, Wolfram and, and Ken Henry, um, they uh, gave you long answers 
Mm. I mean, Ken was telling yep. lots of stories, which was fantastic. And, yep. and Wolfram was, it seemed like he was kind of just thinking out loud. Yep. I mean, he's got excellent thoughts. So it was great for the listener, but yeah. Yep. Are there any guests that uh, you really have wanted to have on the show, but have turned you down? I'm thinking in particular of a, an annual tradition that you have with a certain Australian politician. <laughs> yeah, so I have an annual tradition where I email Paul Keating's secretary and get rejected. <laughs> But you, should, you generally shouldn't go through the gatekeeper. It's just their job to say no. You should go through some kind of personal connection. So, so that annual tradition is just like a complete lazy sort of Hail Mary on my part. There's actually a better way to get to Paul Keating. <laughs> Listeners, if, if you know. <laughs> <laughs> Who has... So, I mean, there have been some people where I think, oh, they'll, they'll probably say yes. And then I've just been surprised when I've received no response or a negative response. Yeah. Some people I've wanted to get on but haven't. One is George Lakoff. Okay. Wrote that book, Metaphors We Live By, mm-hmm. about how a large part of our cognition is just like pattern matching. Right. Who else? A bunch, bunch of people. It's probably like the academics who surprise me because I'm like, surely they'll speak. Like, <laughs> it's, it's, was it Chad? Uh, yeah. So, so someone who I, I mentioned to you when we caught up last week that uh, Chad Jones, the yeah. economist at Stanford, who's done a lot on growth. He was a negative earlier this year. So that was that was kind of surprising. There are a bunch of like more high profile guests that okay. I'm chipping away at at the moment. Chipping away. So I guess they haven't said yes yet, but that's not necessarily a no. Right. I don't know. I probably shouldn't share any of their names. That's fine. No, no, that's fair enough. Jinx it. Don't want to jeopardize your, your chances. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. Well, you um one of your listeners. Uh, has come up with a drinking game uh, that they posted on an Apple podcast review, <laughs> which is that every time one of your guests says something like, wow, that's a really good question or that's a very interesting question, they have a drink. Um, <laughs> and it's no surprise that they get sloshed by the end of the interview. Uh, you, you know, like the the Danny Kahneman interview at the very end as the as it's kind of fading out, you hear him say, oh, you're a very good interviewer, right? And then mm. in the, in the Ken Henry interview, he, he pays you a very big compliment, I think around the one hour 30 mark where, where you ask him the question about him being colorblind and whether that was a problem. He's like, wow, you're, you're too well briefed, Joe. <laughs> um, do, do you, I mean, do you think of yourself as a naturally good interviewer or is that something that you've had to learn over the last couple of years? I mean, I guess there are all of these aspects to it which are innate, like the ability to speak speak well, to think well, so you're formulating good questions. I suppose I've, I've honed the technique on top of that and what those people are gesturing at when they say like you're a very good interviewer is I think the maybe, – maybe two things actually and this is quite zen because these are, these are almost like opposing things yeah. or orthogonal things. One is doing really deep research so that you can ask questions that haven't been asked before. Mm-hmm. And then the other is actually being present in the interview so that you can respond to what they actually say okay. and follow up on it. Because like the magic or a lot of the marginal value of an interview is in the follow-up because that's where you can open up something that hasn't been discussed before. Yeah. How, what percentage of good interviewing then would you say is just good scholarship, good preparation? I think it's very high. For me, that's the main lever for the quality of an episode. It's just how much prep can I get done? Maybe, I don't know, like 80%. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And do you think your reputation now 
gives you a certain level of credibility to bring on new guests? Like, you know, like this year, did you find that any of the guests you reached out to kind of knew who you were or knew of you? Or I mean, maybe they look you up and they go, oh, he's, you know, interviewed uh, interesting I'm not, people. I'm not sure how many of them already knew me, but certainly they, I expect them to look me up after I send the initial cold email. And we actually, the developer I worked with and I designed my website to optimize for guest conversion. So it's not actually so much for the listeners. The homepage of the website nice. is actually designed to persuade a guest who's considering coming on the show to That's say yes. Yeah, I never would have guessed that. Yeah, wow. Uh, do you, because you get into such depth on these topics and you're talking with world experts, how often do you find yourself, if ever, uh, feeling out of your depth or a little bit like an imposter even, like this just got very technical very quickly or something like that? Like all the time. <laughs> I'm, I'm acutely aware of the fact that- This even, gives me more empathy for you, by the way. <laughs> I'm acutely aware of the fact that even with the research and preparation I do, which, which to be clear, I'm never happy with. I never feel like I've done enough. <laughs> but even with that, so maybe putting in like tens of hours of reading and research and talking to other experts- doing that as preparation for an episode, I've, I've still barely scratched the surface of their field. And, and a lot of that knowledge is, is just like very flimsy. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Which episode did you have to prepare most for this year? I have a conjecture, but... <laughs> so let me... Okay, well, t- tell me your conjecture first. Well, I was well and truly out of my depth in the Cardi Carico interview. Okay. Like, I mean, that's just because I don't know very much biology, but yeah. uh, if it were me in your shoes, I, that would be <laughs> the one I would have had to prepare the most for. Yeah, interesting. Um, I mean, it, it, it's like... With a lot of these things, it's just learning the language of the field, right? Yep. But you already know the language of economics and and a, you know a good chunk of the language of philosophy. So, yep. uh, I mean, you have had other biologists on, um, mm-hmm. but you know, like evolutionary biologists and and this sort of thing, not so much immunology. Oh, yeah, yeah, Peter Doherty on actually, mm. um, yeah. But you tell me. So it wasn't Cardi. I actually felt very underprepared for that episode. Okay, and it probably seems to you or to to other people who aren't who didn't do like the cursory research into you know, microbiology that I did, that I, I was well prepared because I'm speaking the language, but yeah. it's very surface level kind of knowledge. I, I was actually embarrassed about how underprepared I was for the episode. <laughs> and I sat on it for like a few months because I was like, this was such an important person. This was her first ever long form yeah. podcast. I, I just didn't do as good of a job as I should have. Okay. Which was probably too self-critical, but that's just a reflection of, so I don't know how much prep would I have done for that one? Maybe like 10 to 20 hours yeah, or something okay. like that. Much of it on the flight on the way over. Um, <laughs> so who did I, okay, let me reframe your question from like, who did I have to do the most prep for ah. to who did I do the most prep yep. for this year? Um, God. I will say Wolfram. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That was a very in-depth interview. Yeah. 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 I'll say Wolfram. Had you already read New Kind of Science before? No. no. I mean, I'd like, I was aware of it. I, I'd like dabbled in it in the past, but I'd never actually seriously tried to, to read it. It's an impressive book. Yeah. It's an intellectual achievement. Whatever you think of his conclusions and whether or not you want to accept them, just the idea of a new kind of science as an intellectual project yeah. is so ambitious and compelling. Yeah. So what, if you hadn't read that book, what um, made you 
bring ask, ask him to come on the show in the first place? What was it? Was it the physics project or? Well, I mean, I knew I knew all of his. I was vaguely familiar with all of his work. Okay. I felt like there hadn't been a great kind of canonical Wolfram episode to date. Yes. But maybe there has been. He's done a lot of media, so I'm not sure about that. But I felt like I could add some kind of marginal value there. And uh, he was relevant to the AI topic. That I think that actually yeah. that was my original route in okay. is I wanted to get his thoughts on AI. Yeah. Which we actually run out of time to cover in any depth. So. I was going to say that, yeah. You can <laughs> um, only just touch on it towards yeah, the yeah, end, right? Yeah, yeah, I know, which is kind of a shame. Um, but we're, we're pl- planning around too. So oh, cool. we can... Talk about for it for 2024. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. So before we jump into some of the themes, which uh, AI will be one of them, but okay. before before we get there, uh, I think you wouldn't put a listener in my chair if you didn't value the contributions of your listeners. Mm-hmm. But there was one point this year where you did not care what your listeners had to say. Uh, do you have any idea what what I'm hinting at? No. On, on August 7th, Joe, uh, you posted a Twitter poll asking your <laughs> followers uh, whether you should change your name to the, the, the name of the podcast to something less ridiculous than yeah. the Jolly Swagman podcast. Yeah. Uh, loaded question, by the way. Uh, 70%, almost 70% of, of the 431 people who responded yeah. said, no, leave it, leave it as is. Yeah. 20% said you should change the name. Yeah. Uh, 10% we're not sure, but you changed the name. What's what's going on there? So I'm trying to persuade the marginal listener to subscribe <laughs> to the show. And there's probably a massive selection effect where the people responding to that poll were existing listeners this who had true. some kind of attachment to the name, some kind of status quo bias. But I, I don't care about them. They're going <laughs> to, well, I do care about them a lot, but I don't care what they think about the name because uh-huh. they'll keep listening to the show in, in all likelihood. I'm trying to convince the person listening from, I don't know, America who is finding the show for the first time and is like, the jolly swag, man. Like, what the <laughs> fuck is this? <laughs> who, uh, yeah, is uh, rightly confused or was rightly confused about the old name. Fair enough. Yeah. Do you think it was a good move? Uh, I, I, do, I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm an Australian guy, so I, I liked the jolly swag, man. I think probably long-term it was a good move. I mean, are, are you familiar with, um, Friedrich Hayek makes this distinction between like the law and the legislation, mm-hmm. right? And so like the law is like, what, what everyone actually does and then the yep. legislation, you know, is, is what's written in. Uh, I feel like, you know, for, for your existing listeners, you, you might've changed the legislation, but I don't know that you changed the law. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If, like if I'm telling someone about the podcast, I'll still, I'll still say Jolly Swagman usually. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, it's called the Joe Walker podcast. No, there, there are some, uh, <laughs> I'm conscious of some acts of rebellion like that. I think there's also like a- <laughs> Pure rebellion. Yeah. A sub a subreddit as well, which is still the Jolly Swagman. <laughs> Probably stay that way. And another thing you did this year was uh, what, well, what you called an experiment, which was to open up the show to listener contributions mm-hmm. uh, and to see how much of the show you could support just via listener contributions. Uh, mm. So how's that experiment gone? Yeah, so opening up to financial contributions. This started maybe one or two months ago, like just after I quit my day job and started to give more time to the show. Yep. So to be clear, I... My hypothesis was never that it would be able to financially sustain the show. I suspected that it wouldn't. And in part, that was because I'd seen other shows attempt the same experiment and just 
fail to sustain the model. So the most famous example there is the Tim Ferriss show. Okay. I think several years ago he tried to switch to a like a subscriber model and remove all ads from his podcast and it yep. might might have lasted like a month or two and he switched back to the ad model. I'd procrastinated on doing it for years because I just felt like I, I, I didn't like the feeling of like rattling the tin, uh, so to speak. Um, but I'd kind of become persuaded that you know, maybe – Maybe rattling the tin is better than you know, like like publishing some sponsor that I don't like have a close connection to, whatever. And so I was correct. It it's not enough to sustain the show, um, but I was like super moved and touched by the contributions I received. Like yeah. regardless of the size, just from all sorts of people, it's it's actually really motivating and it's a big morale boost yeah. because people are um i guess like revealing their preferences yeah in a in a really clear way um so yeah i was like touched and grateful to all of the people who contributed yeah you can kind of see your caution even when you you know made, made the announcement that you were opening up to listener contributions because you you said something like um please don't give if if it's gonna detract from you giving to charity or or anything else yeah yeah uh, yeah, yeah. So, um yeah, and that's not it's not me trying to do some like virtue signaling thing. I just genuinely feel like there are probably better causes to give you money <laughs> to. Like I'll be fine if you don't support the show. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see how that goes in twenty twenty four. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, let's talk about some of the the best moments uh, of the year. Maybe the best episode and most underrated episode of the year. Yeah. Before we dive into themes, uh, so you actually have not told me what the listener. Uh, best episode was. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to guess. In terms of absolute downloads. In term, yeah. Let's say yep. in terms of absolute down, uh, downloads. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to guess. Mm-hmm. I, I'm actually going to guess top three. Sure. And um, Will you rank them? I'll rank them. Yep. Yeah. I'm pr- probably going to be way off. Um, I'm say. facing a situation of radical uncertainty here. Uh, <laughs> this is resolvable uncertainty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. So I'm going to say top episode of the year was Ken Henry, then, because you have a lot of Australian listeners, then Stephen Wolfram. Uh, and I think I would have put Cardi Carrico in third, but I'm actually going to say it's been displaced by the Pinker Deutsch interview that you just did uh, a couple of weeks ago. So okay. there's, there's, my, there's my top three. That's, you know, I, I'm not just making a wild guess here. That's based on, in part, on the different engagement on Twitter with uh, the posts that you make mm-hmm. um, when you're announcing the episodes. So those are the three posts that I think have gotten the most engagement out of any of the, the episodes. Uh, but let's see whether that's a reasonable indicator of, of downloads. Pretty good. So I think you got two out of three, oh. which is good. That's a, that's a credit. Thank you. So Ken Henry was the top. Okay. Daniel Kahneman was the second ah. and Pinker and Deutsch are likely to be the third. Yeah. Yeah. Third place at the moment is Catalan Carrico, but they'll probably yeah. outstrip that. Yeah. Okay. That was pretty good. Yeah. What do you think were the underrated episodes this year? So originally I would have said Catalan Carrico, yeah. but she got all of these downloads after winning the Nobel Prize. <laughs> I was going to ask the, you about the that. Episode yeah. went like semi-viral again. Let's see. I'm trying to remember the episodes I've done this year. I think maybe the Peter Singer one. Yeah, okay. Um, 
that really underperformed. You think it's just because he's a repeat guest? He's he's kind of saturated the podcast market. Yeah, okay. He's a repeat guest. But I think that was arguably the best of the three I'd done with him. So yeah, I might say Peter Singer. Okay. Most underrated. Yeah. The the data on retention was a little different. Yeah. Uh which I think surprised this I do know. It surprised me and it surprised you. Yeah. So the the episode that had the highest listener retention, which correct me if I'm wrong, but that's just defined as uh, listening to the end of the episode. Yeah, it's like the percentage of people who listen are still listening by the end. So the the highest retention was on the Palmer Lucky episode. Yeah. Yeah, followed by Peter Turchin. Yeah. What do you make of that? I mean, I I have a theory, but I want to hear yours. Yeah. So I... Palmer still puzzles me. <laughs> one one possible explanation is so this retention data is from Spotify. So yeah. I'm I'm using it as a proxy for the retention for the mm-hmm. episode overall. Right. There's a selection problem. There's a selection problem. Spotify is like five people who use Spotify, five to ten percent of my audience. And I use Spotify. So. Yeah. And I think that audience <laughs> skews young as well. Yeah. So to the extent that Palmer as a guest resonates with a younger audience, that might explain why his retention was higher than all the other episodes. I don't know. Maybe he's also just like a compelling speaker. Maybe it was a good interview. I felt kind of disappointed by it because I, I felt like sometimes he gave very vague or general answers to questions that were interesting. So yeah, I'm, I'm he wouldn't share his list with you. <laughs> yeah. He, he shared, he shared like one or two things, yeah. which is cool. So that you're referring to his list of his like list forgotten, of 50, forgotten technologies. Forgotten yeah. technologies. Yeah. So that's that's a puzzle. Turchin, again, I, I don't know. Maybe there's like some kind of drama in hearing about why the US is going to fail as a yeah. society so people want to keep listening. I guess also they were they were shorter episodes. That's Each true. was under two hours. That's that, true. That might help as well. I think What's the, your theory? I, I'll come back to the Palmer Lucky episode, but I think in the Turchin episode, you kind of hyped up a leap overproduction at the beginning, but you didn't talk about it until quite a bit later on. Okay. May- maybe by that point, people were kind of like, oh, I'll just listen to the, like I was listening because right. I wanted to hear about elite production. You was that true in your case? No, I would have listened to the whole thing anyway. Okay. okay. I mean, I listened to all of, obviously I listened to all of the yeah. episodes yeah. for the year. I probably shouldn't be sitting here if I didn't listen to all, <laughs> all the episodes for the year. So there was, you think there was a hook? There was a hook. I, I do think there was a hook. In, in the Palmer Lucky episode, that's a more interesting case to me. One One thing is that I think if we were to divide your guests into uh, two broad classes for the year, we, we could call them the kind of the politically influential class and then the kind of academic heavyweights. Mm-hmm. And I think all of your guests, except for Palmer Lucky, fit into those categories. Um, he's not, you know, he, he wasn't sort of academically influential. He sort of made these engineering feats in a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was the odd one out in some sense. Uh but also I think the conversation was just a lot lighter than the academic. When you're interviewing, you know, academic people, the conversation can get dense very quickly. Right. Uh, I, you know, you talked about, you know, fiction and yeah. sci-fi and augmented reality and there's mm. a kind of fun, to, it's easy listening, right? Mm. So that would be my guess, but who knows? Yeah. yeah. Maybe your listeners a good will guess. reach out to you and tell you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's talk about some of the themes from the year. Okay. What, I mean, we've already mentioned AI and AGI uh, would, should make its way in there too. What would be some of the other themes that you would say have run through the year, some of the dominant themes? Firstly, I don't feel like AI was a massive theme. 
I'm not sure what you think, but I I feel like this was kind of a blind spot for me in the show in 2023 when relative to how hyped and important it was as a story in the world, um, I don't think I gave it much coverage, which was a a somewhat deliberate decision, just like hedge against that. Okay. But some some of the recurring themes include the importance of partnerships mm. in doing creative work. Yep, so <laughs> this question of are pairs the optimal creative unit, this came up with Kahneman because of his famous partnership with Amos Tversky, yep. came up with Carico because of her partnership with Drew Weissman. Yep. I think it came up with Wolfram in the negative sense of his Heidi very famously like a lone Wolfram, um, pun intended. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> so it was like, nice. could he have like done his work more quickly if he had the right partner? Yeah, we discussed Hardy and Ramanujan as well. It might have come up in... It came up in Rhodes, uh, the Rhodes, oh, Rhodes interview. He, he said to you that he had some research on that, uh, or he'd found some research that kind of stable, uh, the dyad was like a stable mathematical structure or something. And oh, I think you that's were, right. You know, to use some Aussie slang, you were like frothing over that a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and he was, he, was, he, he was talking about that in the, in the geopolitical context, yeah. but I was hoping that there was some like interesting game theory that, might have sat behind that. You did I, link the article in the transcript. So, right. Yeah. 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 It, it wasn't that helpful in the yeah. end, that article. But it, I mean, it was interesting on its own terms. So that's, that's one theme. Maybe another one is uh, the UFO discussion. Came up twice. <laughs> yeah. I tried, yeah. To, tried to inject that where I could. So <laughs> it, it just like baffles me that we, people aren't talking about that more. Yeah. I mean, well, and, and so the episodes I spoke about that in were Richard Rhodes and... Palmer Lucky. Palmer Lucky. Yeah. yeah. He had some outrageous theories, which were a lot of fun, right? For the, Can you for remind this. me? I think he was saying that he thought that maybe it was much more likely to be some civilization from a very long time ago oh, who's right. kind of been living among yeah. us or some, something yeah. like that. Time traveling um, humans. Yeah, or, or, or something like one that. One of the big yeah. hypotheses. Yeah. 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 Whereas Richard Rhodes, I think, was... Maybe a lot more reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not that, you know, a bit of speculation is fun. A- any other ones you'd, you'd put on that list of things that came up in the year? I mean, th- those are the two that come to mind in terms of object level topics. Yeah. You could probably say that there were deeper, more philosophical themes, mm-hmm. but yeah, I'm, I don't know. I'm curious to hear your no, this, thoughts. This is good. So firstly, um, I suppose it sort of depends on how we define what a theme is. Uh, AI and or AGI came up in six of your episodes this year. Okay, what? so I was so, I was relevant. You, you were relevant, <laughs> right? So, so Kahneman, you asked whether oh. AI systems will reduce bias. Yeah, and will they do it consistently or affect some biases more than others? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And then um, in your Palmer Lucky interview, you asked him about uh, sort of AI, uh, sorry, VR in a post-AGI world and right. also the risks of like a country like China getting AGI. Yeah. Uh, then, and will AGI actually deliver a more final kind of means of experiencing and communicating to yes. us than VR? Yes. Yeah. And then in uh, the Richard Rhodes episode, you drew this parallel right between uh, the development of AGI and the making of the atomic bomb. Right. We didn't really talk about it, but it did come up. Yeah. Obviously, you did talk about this with Stephen Wolfram in terms of the, the, the implications of computational irreducibility for AI. But it sounds yeah. like we've got another episode coming yeah. that will flesh that out a little bit more. Mm. Um, then it also came up in the Peter Singer episode because you asked him about oh, yeah. the ethics of superintelligent yeah. <laughs> um, beings. And should we, should we just wish our, like if AI- <laughs> Wish them well. <laughs> take over and cause human extinction, should we just kind of fade into history and wish them well? Yeah. Um, from a utilitarian standpoint. 
He yeah. said yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, in your last episode, uh, you talked kind of at length. Well, I mean, Steven Pinker and David Deutsch talked to right. about this at length. So I, th- I think it was maybe more relevant than, than you think. Yeah, I think you're right. Although I still feel as though I didn't give it the truly rigorous coverage that it deserves. Yeah. Including and especially in the Pinker and Deutsch episode. <laughs> Fair enough. We'll get, we'll get there. Uh, well, yeah, we'll get to that episode. So an- another broad theme I think that, I, that came up through the year, and maybe this is just something that's, that's true about the podcast and less so about this year, but you talked a lot about progress of science and mm. progress of technology. That's a good pickup. I should have added that as a theme. Mm. So, I mean, like t- to name a few, the entire Richard Rhodes episode is essentially about progress of science and technology, right? Mm-hmm. The making of the atomic bomb and Catalan uh, uh, Carrico's episode, right? was about the development of an mRNA. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, this came up as well in the Steven Pinker and David Deutsch episode. At the end of the episode, mm-hmm. uh, you asked them, I think, three questions about progress. And... Um, and you talk about this with, with Wolfram as well. Mm. So this was definitely, I mean, the, in a sense, you could even think of the Peter Tertian episode as uh, progress of history or, you know, science of history, progress of science. Uh, it's, it's a loose connection, mm-hmm. but yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that was definitely a big theme this year. What, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I agree. And now that you're kind of reminding me of it, it's definitely something that I was like, similar to the UFO topic or the pairs <laughs> topic trying to consciously inject into the conversations because I'm when, when I do that, I'm doing it because I feel like the topic is underrated or underexplored or underdeveloped. And I just want people thinking about it more. Yeah. And obviously there's been a lot of talk about the great stagnation mm-hmm. and problems in science and the over bureaucratization of science, but trying to direct people to thinking more about hey, well, what are the solutions out of this? Yeah. Um, how can we, how can we make science better? Was yeah. One of my little goals this year. That's cool. Yeah. I was actually going to do a little segment on things Joe thought was underrated this year, <laughs> but, but you only used the word like three times to describe things that you thought were underrated. So I didn't think it was quite enough. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's um, let's maybe talk a little bit about dyads and, and pairs. Mm-hmm. So you, you have this running hypothesis that pairs can advance science in a way that- uh, Or any creative field. Yeah. Yeah. Or any, okay. Or any creative field uh, in a way that individuals- cannot and that groups of three or more are also cannot because they can kind of bounce ideas off of each other. Yeah. I know you like the book, The Powers of Two, um, but- I actually don't like that book, oh, but, that, okay. but that was kind of a, it's a good reference book and it was sort of an entry point into the topic. Okay. So, well, that's good because I want to ask you kind of where did this hypothesis come from for you mm. and where where does it sit now at the end of the year having talked with, you know, a couple of, of different people about it? Yeah. I mean, the conversation with Kahneman about it was pretty special and touching, like the way yeah. he talked about Amos and the emotion that he he spoke about him with. So originally my thinking on this came about through contemplating examples of pairs or noticing lots of examples of, of very fertile pairs. Okay. Maybe the first of those was Kahneman and Tversky. And that was that was actually long before I'd kind of encountered Josh Shank's book, Powers of Two. Mm-hmm. I think now my thinking on it is maybe a little more developed in that I've tried to think of, okay, how do you model this or at what points are pairs the optimal creative unit? So that's that's where I'm at now. And I'm intending to write this up into some kind of blog post or essay that I'll publish on my website in the new year. Very good. So I think you said that you were jealous of Kahneman and yeah, he said that you yeah, should yeah. be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, do, I mean, do you... 
are you looking for <laughs> for that pair, uh, that kind of intellectual person to, to spar with in a sense? Um, have you Did you think you'd found that in Gus at the beginning of the podcast or, uh, I mean, that's going back a while now, but, but yeah. yeah, I mean, where do you sit on that personally? <laughs> Right, so so yeah, Gus is my my friend who I originally started the podcast with. Yep. He he stepped back and moved to New York for work, and I was probably always like slightly more passionate about it than him. So yep. he handed the reins over to me. I think we had had a good dyad, but I don't think two person interviewer podcasts work as a format. Mm-hmm. The reason for that is the big value add in a conversation podcast is in the follow-up question because that's where you start to explore nuance or go in directions that previous interviews haven't gone before with that guest. And if you have two interviewers, we can't, Mm. we're not telepathic. So I might have a great follow-up question, but if my co-interviewer jumps in with the next question, that Mm. moment's lost forever. Right. Um, So I don't think that like two-person interrogation works as a format. But I guess I suppose like it's plausible that I could have someone else who works with me on the show behind the scenes who helps me prepare or like does the operational stuff or admin or helps with the guest selection and they are like one part of a dyad. I do need help with the show like on an, on an ops front. <laughs> I guess I'm not necessarily looking for like a an intellectual partner for the show per se, but I think for other projects in life, I think, yeah, yeah. That, that would be... That would be amazing. I mean, yeah, you just said that you were going to potentially be writing up something about dyad, some yep. kind of essay or something. So yep. you're clearly wanting to uh, pursue some other intellectual <laughs> uh, activities, right? Mm. So insofar as those things go, do you think that um, that I suppose you'll be looking for, for someone to do that with or you just sort of know what you want to do and you're going to get on with it? I think for the, for the essays and blog posts and things I want to write, I know what I want to do and I just want to get on with it. I think there are probably like more ambitious projects where a partner would be a massive benefit. Yeah. Like starting a company, that kind of thing. Okay. You always need a co-founder. Yeah. Yeah. Have you got a company in mind already? Um, I mean, I guess like I have different ideas, like nothing nothing that I'm seriously working on yet, but probably things that I'll start doing next year. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Very cool. Well, uh, maybe let's dive into some of the episodes right. a little bit. Hey guys, this is Joe. A quick word from this episode sponsor before we return to the conversation. So giving season is upon us and I wanted to let you know about one of my favorite organizations, GiveWell. So there are over 1.5 million nonprofit organizations in the United States and millions more around the world. But how do you find the most effective ones? Well, GiveWell was founded to help donors with that question. They scour independent studies and charity data to help donors direct their funds to the highest impact evidence-backed organizations. Here are three facts that you should know about GiveWell. First, GiveWell has now spent over 15 years researching charitable organizations, and it only directs funding to a few of the highest impact opportunities they've found in global health and poverty alleviation. Second, over 100,000 donors have used GiveWell to donate more than $1 billion, that's billion with a B. Rigorous evidence suggests that these donations will save over 150,000 lives and improve the lives of millions more. And third, GiveWell wants as many donors as possible to make informed decisions about high-impact giving. For that reason, you can find all of their research and recommendations on their site for free. You can make tax-deductible donations to their recommended funds or charities, and GiveWell doesn't take a cut. I personally give to the Against Malaria Foundation, one of GiveWell's top four charities, which distributes bed nets to prevent malaria at a cost of about $5 to provide one net. 
If you've never donated through GiveWell before, you can have your donation matched up to $100 before the end of the year or as long as matching funds last. To claim your match, go to givewell.org and pick podcast and enter Joe Walker podcast at checkout. Make sure that they know you heard about GiveWell from the Joe Walker podcast to get your donation matched. Again, that's givewell.org to donate or find out more. All right, let's get back to the conversation. So, I mean, we can start at the beginning of the year with, with the Daniel Kahneman episode. Uh, one of the moments that surprised me in this episode was when you asked him about radical uncertainty yeah. and he sort of didn't know what you were talking about. <laughs> mm. um, I, I kind of expected him to to understand what you were saying immediately uh, this idea of you know not kind of not being able to place subjective probabilities on on events or something like this, um, but you you actually I mean you explained what you meant to him and and correct me if I'm wrong but you had John Kay and Mervyn King's book sitting on the the table in that interview I did yeah did, yeah. did he have a flick through it afterwards or uh, we, I mean I guess first off were you surprised at that as well or or yeah yeah I think I, I remember being surprised because it's it's kind of like one of the big foundational vectors of objection to their work. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure he's contemplated it before. It might've just been the case that he, he didn't like hear me with my okay. Australian accent, but yeah, I, I don't know. Is because certainly on the way out of the interview, I had some, as you, I mentioned to you last week, I had some books sitting on the side table because yeah. I travel with a pile of books, often ones that are relevant to the interviews I'll be doing. Mm-hmm. One of them was Mervyn Kay and John King's Radical Uncertainty. And he kind of pointed at it and commented on it. As if he he had actually read it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. He uh, said he said that was a strange book and pointed at it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, doesn't seem like much of a compliment. Does it? <laughs> um, so you you used to this is going to be a bit of an oddball question, but yeah, you used to write a blog a long <laughs> time ago, uh, <laughs> and this blog was your. Thoughts on books that you were reading. Yeah, I, I didn't even know this was still discoverable. So yeah, so this is uh, this is still discoverable if you know the link. And if you go to the you know uh, josephnorwalker.com or whatever slash blog, or I can't remember exactly what it yeah. is. If you look it up on Google, uh, you know Joe Walker blog, you'll find it. Right. Um, I took it down because I was so embarrassed. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you click on this thing, and then it's just got like Laura Mipsum text okay. <laughs> at the top, and then it's got all of your old blogs. Ah. Um, but. This was up until I don't know two years ago. Okay, something like that. So, um, oh, so it's not discoverable. It's at n- the well, you can find it if you search on Google for it, but okay. it's not discoverable from the website. Yeah. But this is the thing I only learned this recently. Actually, if you like create a page on Google Sites or something, but mm-hmm. then you don't, um, you don't include a, a link to it on the navigation bar, people can still access it if they know the URL. Right. So I thought, I wonder if it's still available. <laughs> <laughs> Lo and behold, um, when. Uh, when you read Thinking Fast and Slow mm. for the first time, uh, it took you about three months to yeah. read that book. Yeah. Why did it take you so long? It's just really dense. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there were lots of other dense books that you were reading at, at the time, kind of going back, and they were only taking you sort of one or two weeks. Was there anything special about this particular book? Or I think, so, I mean, I was probably, I wasn't reading it continuously. I was probably reading other things as well and like context switching with other books. Yeah. But I think I, I, from memory, so so I must have finished it sometime in 2017. Yeah, I think it was 2017, January to April or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I think I remember wanting to to actually internalize it 
And so I spent a lot of time just rereading stuff, making sure I'd understood it. And it's a dense book. Yeah. So that's probably why. Okay. Yeah. I mean, to my credit, I, I dare say most people who own that book haven't haven't read it or haven't finished it. <laughs> yeah. I actually I actually made the effort of finishing well it. Done. Yeah. Well done. Well <laughs> done. Have you wanted to interview Kahneman since then? Or like has that been on your kind of on your list for a long time? Or yeah, yeah. I think I might have emailed him in the early days of the podcast and then maybe like roughly every year since then. So the persistence pays off. Yeah, and, and in a way, it's kind of good that he didn't agree initially because it would have been a radically different interview, a much worse interview if uh, he'd come on the show in the <laughs> early days. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I have to ask you about one question that you didn't ask uh, Daniel Kahneman, which okay. is, so you talked about his book Noise. Yeah. Uh, in May of 2021, I think, mm-hmm. uh, The Economist Rachel Meager yep. posted a, a tweet mm-hmm. saying that, the book contains a repeatedly incorrect claim about correlation and causation, which was basically that uh, that zero correlation implies no causation. Yeah. Um, now you you, I mean, for for anyone wondering, the the kind of classic example, which is the one that Rachel gives, uh, is like you you're driving a car and you you hit a hill, and so you pump the gas, but your speed going up the hill is constant. And so the correlation between how hard you're pressing the gas and your speed is zero, but obviously they're causally related. Yeah. Um, so you kind of went there with him on priming and I was expecting you to go there with him on this part of the noise book and you mm. didn't. And I was just wondering why. It's like, a great, were you aware it, of this? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's a, it's a great question. I was aware of this. I think I may have even shared it in my weekend newsletter at some point. Like I thought, I thought Rachel was right. It, I didn't feel like I was adding any value by asking him about it. I'm pretty sure the author, him and his co-authors responded, Cass and, yeah, Oliver. and Oliver. I'm pretty sure they responded. And so, well, am I just going to get like another response <laughs> on it from him? doesn't seem like a great use of time. And it felt a little, maybe it felt a little too gotcha as well. <laughs> yeah. It is a bit of a gotcha yeah. thing to ask. Do, I mean, do you think I should have asked it? I, I don't. I just, I, I kind of expected that you might go there because you asked him about priming, right? Like, you know, there's been this big replication crisis and I think that's not the only chapter of his book that's kind of come under question. Yeah. Uh, And so, I don't know. Mm. Maybe I expected you to go there. I'm not sure. Mm. But I I understand why you didn't. Mm. All right. Uh, Let's talk about Palmer Lucky. Mm -hmm. You, um, You asked him this question about one lesson that he'd learned from Peter Thiel that was not in the book Zero to One. Yeah. Um, this is a book you read some seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> right, blog again. Yeah. <laughs> and his answer was kind of the main point of <laughs> Zero to One. Yeah. And I know you said earlier when we've been talking that you felt like like Palmer gave you kind of vague answers. Uh, were you were you disappointed with that answer? Were you expecting more? I remember feeling immediately disappointed. <laughs> I wanted him to give some kind of... I I just imagine these situations where Peter's kind of put his arm around his shoulder and said, listen here, son, like this is how you do <laughs> layoffs properly or this is how you raise your series C and how it's different to your B or like some kind of really specific tactical mm-hmm. founder to founder advice. Yeah, That's what I was hoping for. And instead he responded with basically what's the main message <laughs> of zero to one, which is just like the idea of building a monopoly. Yeah. What I maybe could have done different in that is just modeling for him what I was looking for in a good answer. 
Okay. In the preface to my question. So given him, but maybe I did that. I don't remember. I actually don't remember either. Yeah. Do you think that if you had have maybe given him more context or if he had had more time to think, he might've been able to give you the answer you were looking for? Possibly, but it's not clear whether he would have wanted to do that anyway. Yeah. I wondered that. Yeah. Like, did you feel like he was withholding from you in the interview? Yes and no. Like there was some, there was actually some great stuff that's never been shared before. Like the fact that he is writing his own sci-fi or some stuff from his forgotten technologies list. I don't think he'd spoken about steam engines before though. I could be wrong. So like I I was genuinely happy with that stuff and I was kind of like patting myself on the back. I knew what questions to ask, but then I felt like there were other times where he was kind of bloviating. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did did he send you his draft of the last hot rod, uh, sci-fi story that he's writing no no we we didn't really we didn't speak again and i actually didn't that that was the one this year where i never corresponded with the guest to arrange the interview wow he was in sydney to speak at the you know aspie the the australian strategic policy institute okay it's kind of like a a hawkish think tank based in canberra um they had this conference where they brought in all these speakers one of them was him and I got a cold email from one of the organizers, I think maybe a PR person saying, oh, we're holding these seminars and talks. Huh. These are the list of, this is the list of speakers that are anything you want to speak to. And I, I looked through and I said, yeah, Palmer Lucky. So they arranged it. And, and actually really the, the paradigm when I went in was very much like I'm a journalist and this is like a media interview okay. because there were like his handlers and a local Australian PR person were in the room when I went in and I had to ask them to leave because I was like, this is like an, <laughs> an intimate podcast conversation. I don't want like an audience. Yeah. And they they were quite concerned about that and asking him like, are you okay being doing the interview alone? And so they, they like totally thought of me as some like journalist guy. Right. Yeah. But they reached out to you to, to ask you who you wanted to interview. Yeah. I mean, th- these people who were in the room weren't the same as whoever had, had reached out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it wasn't like he was needing some good publicity and you just happened to be around. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, that, okay. Yeah. Cool. Uh, l- let's move on to Ken Henry then. Yep. So I think the thing I enjoyed most about that episode was that Ken tells really good stories. Yep. <laughs> he had a lot of really good stories. Um, and so I was wondering whether he shared any stories with you behind the scenes that weren't on camera or if there were any kind of moments... Uh, or interactions you had with him that would have stood out that, that the listeners didn't get to hear. I mean, it was a very long episode, obviously. So mm. we, you, you got through a lot, but but yeah. I don't think he shared any historical anecdotes that would have been of interest off the mic. But certainly my interactions with him before and after the episode were really enjoyable and interesting. So I have to say the MVP of this episode was my girlfriend who I because this is still when I was doing my day job. I didn't have too much time to prepare. So like, I I think a few days before I started preparing, I was reading a bunch of stuff, calling a bunch of people. I had my office at home just like covered in post-it notes, (laughs) like the research I was doing. This is before I digitized my my Zettelkasten system. Nice. (laughs) And like just didn't have too much time for it. So I was like cramming the prep. I think I had two hours sleep the night before and I'm in Sydney. He, we did it at his farm in country New South Wales, probably like a four and a half hour drive from our house. Mm-hmm. So my girlfriend did all the driving and I was in the car doing last minute prep on my laptop, like drinking coffee wow. and, trying to, and chewing gum and trying to stay awake. And so we met at Wingham, 
where we did a swap over. So then my, my girlfriend stayed in Wingham and I went with Ken uh-huh. in his um, ute to like his property, which is like quite a drive from, from Wingham. You have to go like up a mountain basically. Right. Um, the te- I think the temperature dropped like four degrees or something. Um, I remember him pointing it out on the dashboard. And that drive, like where our families are kind of from similar parts of New South Wales. And so we had that the bond over, but we were just chatting in the car on the way to his farm. Yeah. Um, so that was really nice. I guess just like getting to know him. Um, and also after, you know, we had his wife made us dinner and chatting after the episode, that was quite nice as well. I think my abiding impression was just like a really humble, decent, yeah. kind guy. Definitely got that sense as a listener. Yeah. Well, thanks to your girlfriend for being the MVP. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. How, how did you feel that uh, that interview compared with other interviews you've done with Australian politicians? I mean, you've, you've done a number of, of interviews with, with Australian politicians. It was um, clearly the best with uh, interview I've done with any Australian politician or policymaker. It was better than the ones I've done with all the politicians, maybe for like a systematic reason, which mm. is just they're maybe more into like legacy building and manicuring their public image. Maybe policymakers would tend to be more honest. So yeah, I, I think it was, it's definitely the best interview I've done with an Australian. Yeah. Yeah. You said that you uh, plastered your wall with post-it notes. Yeah. There's this picture of you, that you well, a picture that you posted to Twitter uh, when you were prepping for your interview with Stephen Wolfram, yeah. you say you've like terraformed the, the room. <laughs> it was uh, my hotel room in Boston. Yeah, yeah, it looks like you're redecorating. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you whether that's how you prepare for all your, your interviews. It sounds like you at least for two of the interviews you, you prepared this way. What's, what's, your, what's your method there? Yeah, not for all of them. So, so what, what I'd done was basically I try and... What, should I talk about my, my interview process? Yeah, sure. So I try and read as much as possible and talk to relevant people because often you need the tacit knowledge that exists in a field you need someone to be like that's what wolfram said <laughs> yeah yeah like you need someone to be like okay forget all this other stuff like these are the two papers you need to read mm-hmm. or okay these really famous old papers are like actually kind of obsolete now and the cutting edge stuff is like here you should read these three people yeah um it's really helpful to have someone like that so i'll often have a loop where I, I like do a lot of research and then I like reach out to and try and talk to people, whether they're friends or people I've just called him out in preparation for an episode. But you want to do a bit of research before you reach out to those experts with the tacit knowledge because you don't want to waste their time and you, you need to know what are the right basic questions to ask. Yep. So yeah, interview process, uh, sorry, preparation process. I'm doing all this reading, talking to people um, and then I'll be kind of writing notes to myself on post-its, mm-hmm. which I stick on the wall and they then tend to coalesce around certain themes. Yeah. And then I'll have other post-it notes for the questions. And uh, as it gets closer to the interview, I'll rearrange the question post-it notes to yeah. form a sequence for the interview. So that's how I did Ken, that's how I did Wolfram. There's mm-hmm. that photo of my hotel room that you mentioned where it's like covered in post-it notes. I've done a few like that, but, but my system now is like way more digital. So <laughs> okay. I'll have so I, I I'll have like software where I've got all my notes written out and the notes kind of connect, they can link to each other. And then nice. I have that also links to flashcards so mm-hmm. I can help to memorize the actual material better. Yep. And then I'll have a Kanban board where I like drag questions in and change the order. Nice. 
Yeah. And do you retain much of that after the interview? Not, not much, but now I'm using flashcards. Um, like I, I'm retaining a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. For people, people wondering what this like world <laughs> of like, I've already mentioned the world Zettel, the word Zettelkasten talking about flashcards and notes, like what all this is, I guess actually have in mind a system of learning that many people have pioneered and written about, but one of the foremost thinkers there would be Andy Matushik, who I did a podcast with last year. Basically you try and make memory a choice by writing really good notes and then helping yourself retain that information with like space repetition memory prompts. Space repetition memory prompts sounds like very fancy and formal, but it's you can just think of flashcards when I say that. And there are all sorts of like apps and software tools you can use. Flashcards yeah. you study with progressively longer intervals. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yeah. Nice. It's a great system, by the way. <laughs> yeah. You use it too, right? Uh, for some things. Yeah. yeah. Flashcards are extremely helpful yeah. for memorizing things. And you use Anki for your flashcards. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's open source. Yeah. So there are some things that it doesn't do as well and it's not as pretty as something like Moki, yeah. which I think is what you said you use. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, you can pretty much get anything you need online. Yeah. Um, somebody's somebody's written it and, you know, if you really needed to, you could write something yourself. Right, right. Um, I also like Moki because I have, so I write my notes in Obsidian okay. and there's a Moki Obsidian plugin. So I basically just push stuff through from the notes into my flashcards in Moki. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So one, one of the things you said before is that you, I mean, you, you kind of don't want to reach out to people until you know enough of the, uh, the language of their field um, or, or the language of the things that they do, right? So this is actually one of the things that came up in your interview with Richard Rose, which he, he said, uh, I had to learn the language of, of physics before mm. I, you know, interviewed any of these scientists. And also with, with uh, Wolfram saying that there's kind of different intuitions in different fields. Mm. Um, do you feel like you've developed those? I mean, the, the podcast kind of has a, a repertoire of, of a couple of different fields now, right? In, yeah. in a sense, do you feel like you've developed those intuitions and, and the language that you need now? I feel like I can, I can speak with economists quite fluently. Preparing for an economics episode is just like way easier. And that, that might indicate that I have retained a lot of, of uh, economic concepts and, and language. So I, I guess there are, yeah, there are a few areas where I feel fairly fluent economics being the main one. Mm. Um, I think I've also developed a good general instinct for how to learn the jargon of a field. Okay. So reading a paper or a, a book or a blog article in a new field that you're trying to learn and having an instinct for like, what are the terms of art here? Because often terms of art can be very well disguised. It just seems like a very commonplace word, it's not capitalized, but actually it means something very specific in the context of that field. Yeah. I feel like I've built up a really good intuition for like, is that likely to be a term of art? Mm -hmm. And then switching to Google or chat GPT where I'm like, okay, what does this mean in the context of this field? And so you're constantly bootstrapping yourself by yeah. looking up the, the basic words and flashcards can help with learning those as well. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think learning the language of a field is um, is a really good way to to learn it. It makes everything uh, a lot easier to understand. Yeah, for sure. I don't want to hone on this point for kind of too long, but I know Tyler Cowan has said before that when he's 
learning about a new topic, he'll often read kind of multiple books on that topic yep. and one after the other, and then maybe read one of them again. Um, when you're learning uh, or when you're kind of prepping for, for an interview, are yep. you just sort of reading one thing at a time? Are you just like reading multiple things at the same time? Are you rereading things? What does it look like for you? It looks like complete chaos, like <laughs> just like someone with ADHD. just <laughs> Like the picture of the post-it notes. Unleashed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so there's like two different there's like two different approaches. One is you just focus on like the source books, the really high signal things. Mm-hmm. So it's what's like the most important paper or the most important book in this field or subfield that's going to give me as much knowledge as possible. And the other way is like, okay, let's read a bunch of random stuff. Mm-hmm. And if I notice things being corroborated among a lot of different sources or things recurring, then I can increase my credence yeah. in those things and and that tends to be more my approach that that second way of yeah, doing okay. it so i'll start by just reading a lot of random stuff that i've found and kind of just building up an intuition for the basic concepts through osmosis yeah or through like triangulating different sources and then i'll start to get more refined as i go makes sense yeah let's talk about your interview with Stephen wolfram mm-hmm. uh I, I found that he I mean, he's obviously a very individual guy, uh, the, the lone wolfram, as you so eloquently yeah. put. Um, I thought that some of his takes were even counter to some of the other guests that you had on this year. So, so to give an example, uh, you, you talked to him about uh, working remotely, yeah. right? And and how uh, his company has kind of been able to cope with that and adapt to that over the last few years. And his answer was very different to when you talk to Catalan Carrico about this, who kind of said, well, there's there's really a lot of value in doing things in person. Mm. Um, but what, what do you make of that? What I make of it is there's not like a blanket rule for every company or team. I think like remote work makes more sense for some organizations than others. Maybe in the case of Wolfram Research and Mathematica, that there's something about that tool that means that remote work is more feasible. Mm-hmm. But like generally, I think there's a lot of value to being physically proximate to whoever your coworkers are. Yeah. Not even from like a collaboration perspective, but also just drawing sucker and morale from, from being close to your colleagues. Do you think there's something different between uh, the private sector and the kind of academic area on that front or not really? I don't know. I haven't thought about it. Do you, do you have... I don't know. I just thought it was interesting that, you know, he, he's Wolfram obviously, you know, he's, he runs a company. Yeah. Um, Catalin Carrico was talking about this in the context of, you know, her work with Drew Weissman and, and others, uh, you know, academic work. Um, I guess, you know, Wolfram does academic work as well. Uh, I, I suppose maybe he's just more bullish on adopting new technologies or maybe he's just found that to be more successful. I don't know. I, yeah. I don't know that there's one right answer necessarily. The more kind of base explanation is just that that's his personal preference and he's molded his company in his image. That's and true. He's just justifying it. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about it. Yeah. Yeah. There was also another thing I thought was amusing is that uh, they both talked about like kind of the role of ego in promoting like scientific progress. Mm. And it's, it's funny to me that both of them seem to indicate that the, the, the work they do themselves they don't do kind of in pursuit of their own egoistic <laughs> desires, but uh, but 
you know, Catalan Carrico in particular seem to see this as something that was kind of important for newer scholars coming into the field to be able to feed their their ego. Do you think at the top that the, the people who make it to the top tend to be the people who aren't doing the, the sort of egoistic work uh, or rather they're, they're doing the things that are important? Or, you know, I mean, even if that's a correlation, do you think there's a causation there? I mean, I think it depends what you mean by ego. Like ultimately this can collapse into that philosophical conversation around is altruism truly altruistic? <laughs> yeah, and the, answer, right. the answer is like, <laughs> no, um, that these things are kind of like nested within each other. I think, I think the people who make it to the top of like any field, including science, um, have to be like incredibly driven, incredibly motivated. And often I think that will be for egotistical reasons yeah. which isn't a bad thing yeah yeah one of the other things that came up in that interview was uh the sort of pseudo randomness of technological innovation mm-hmm. um i thought it was funny because your, your three-pronged attack on peter turchin's uh field yeah the first prong was essentially what stephen wolfram said which is that uh technology development is extremely random and how can you like i think his exact words were something like knowing that something is going to happen is very different to knowing when, when something will yeah, happen yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? i mean he yeah. gives this example of like flat screen televisions and yeah. and the you know extraordinarily slow progress of science um did you kind of take that objection from your interview with with wolfram or or you just had that no, no. It's something I've been thinking about for years. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And you can probably find it in early interviews like with Mervyn King yeah. um, a few years ago. Um, it's kind of like an obvious objection. It is. Where do, you, where do you sit with that now? I mean, you you know, you know, only really raised two of the points of the ob- objection that you had. I think the yeah. third one was something about computationally reducibility, but yeah. you sort of answered it. Yeah. Um, this is Peter Turchin that we're talking about now, obviously. Yeah. Um, where do you – did it change your mind? Did his response change your mind on that? Or, or do you feel like the objection still stands? I think the objection still stands, but with Turchin, I wanted to be incredibly careful about, and and I wanted to be careful about this, and I wanted listeners to be careful about it. The reflex objection to Turchin's work is just the Popperian kind of, how can you purport to know anything about the future? Like that's crazy. Yeah. Like growth of knowledge, yada yada yada. This is dumb. Like this is a this project is just like a wild goose chase. <laughs> but he's he's actually. His project is more sophisticated and nuanced yes. than that. He's he's looking, he's applying complexity science to look for patterns that we can use as explanations, which might give us the ability to make what Popper would call conditional predictions. Yep. So Popper doesn't reject like all predictions outright. I think in um, the poverty of historicism he uses some examples from economics uh, maybe maybe mm-hmm. it's like basic stuff around the laws of supply and demand yeah. where you can say like yeah under certain condi- conditions it's reasonable to think that this would follow so right. yeah I, I i kind of i was approaching tertian very cautiously in that light and trying to be as charitable as possible but i still think that the criticisms i raised stand yeah yeah I certainly felt more amicable towards his field by the end of the interview. Okay. I don't know if you felt the same, but. <laughs> I mean, I, I I had already gone through that process yeah, like okay. in the preparation, but I know what you mean. Yeah. 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 All right. Let, let's talk about uh, Catalan Carrico a little bit. Yeah. This, this, this should be fun. I, I think a lot of your guests have a 
kind of intellectual honesty and humility about them. For me, though, Carti was the absolute standout this year in terms of humility. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, he, like, here's someone who has every reason to hate the system. Um, so you've been through a whole lot of strife, uh, you know, been rejected for grants or work hasn't been recognized the way that, that it perhaps should have been, um, at least in the past. Uh, and yet, you know, she's, she's got this attitude that she, or this, you know, aphorism she kind of attributes to Cellier of what can I do? Uh, do, do you think that her success and the success of her family as well, right? Her daughter's an Olympic rower. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess how much of that do you think is attributable to this attitude of like, what can I do? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you can never rerun the experiment and see, but I feel like it is foundational to her resilience. Yeah. And but for that resilience, she wouldn't have kept pushing ahead in the nineties and the two thousands when she'd suffered all of these setbacks. Mm. Do you think it's a useful attitude to have? I think so. I think the, the counter argument would be something like, you know, you you look around you and you realize that you're kind of doing everything and actually it's the society around you that needs to be changed and not you. Right. Right. So there's a distinction between like what you should do at the the policy level and what you should do at the individual level. <laughs> right. Like obviously at the policy level, you want to target your interventions at like a, a higher level of abstraction, but all else being equal, if you were just giving an individual a piece of advice that you think would like make their life go better, it would be like to have those mindsets <laughs> yeah. and those beliefs. Yeah. 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 Fair enough. Uh, now, I think Cardi is obviously not the first Nobel Prize winner that you've interviewed. I mean, you had Daniel yep. Kahneman on the show earlier this year, but you have a whole slew of Nobel Prize winners. Correct me if I'm wrong, I do believe she's the first person to win a Nobel after being interviewed on the podcast. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, I have a couple of questions on this. My, my, my first one is, I mean, you, you answered one of them already, which is that the episode kind of went viral again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what was your reaction when you found out she won the Nobel? And um, I mean, it, it, and sort of, an, I'll pair that with this question, which is like, at the very beginning of the episode, you you say something in the preface like, uh, if and when a Nobel Prize should be awarded for mRNA, uh, Catalina Carrico is uh, you know among the the top of the you know the the list for candidates as laureate or something like yeah. that. Uh, so I mean, do you think that the Nobel Committee were just big fans of the show or? <laughs> <laughs> I was I was happy when she won it. I was unsurprised, but I didn't realize it would happen so soon. Yeah, okay. Like I, I thought it would take like several years to play out. Because as you know, like the prize is awarded for, there needs to be some kind of like real world impact yeah. of the work. So that's why, for example, with physicists, like theoretical physicists, it will often be like years or decades until yeah. they get the prize because you're still waiting for that empirical validation. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Like all the COVID stuff has happened really recently. So yeah, I, I was kind of, I guess, expecting it to take several more years. Yeah. So the timing somewhat surprised me, but that she won it, that was that was unsurprising and yeah, entirely deserved. Predicting that things will happen versus when, when yeah, they will happen. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And how much how much of a boost did that episode get um after after she won the Nobel? Um I mean, it was Significant, not not as much as it had already had. Okay, okay, but pretty good for an episode that's already been out for like three months. Yeah, because yeah. you said it, it was her first long form podcast. Mm. But then I think when you posted the episode, you clarified and said it was her first yeah. English long form podcast. Yeah, yeah. Why, why did you have to do that? So we, <laughs> I recorded it with her back in February, yeah. and then 
at that point, she, I mean, she'd done podcasts, but they're like the highly produced kind of 20 minute NPR style ones where they get a few quotes from her. I didn't think she'd done, at least to my knowledge, she'd never done. And in my research, mm. I, I hadn't seen that she'd ever done one of the like long sit down, extended, unedited conversations. So I was the first at the time we recorded it. Um, but then by the time I published it, I saw, I, I just happened to go onto her Twitter <laughs> profile and she'd retweeted some like German podcast she'd done, but she did it in German. So I changed it from nice. it, her first long form podcast to her first long form podcast in English. Nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you, I mean, you've got claims on the the first recorded uh, podcast. True, <laughs> true. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay. You, you, you recorded that at her house. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. What was that like? It was really cool. It was just me and her. Obviously her daughter's like grown up now and yeah. yeah, very successful. I think her husband was like out, I don't know, working or something. And so we just sat down, we had the conversation. Um, and like then- At the dining table or something in the video, right? Yeah, yeah. At, at her dining table. And then I think we we took a break like halfway through to get like a drink of, of water. And mm-hmm. during that break and then after the conversation as well, she kind of like toured me around her house and she had all of these orchids growing in, like bulbs growing in in- glasses of water because it was winter when we were recording mm-hmm. um, in you know Northern Hemisphere, US. Yeah. And so she had all these plants she'd brought inside. So the house looked like an arboretum, which was like full of plants. <laughs> and she was like showing them to me and explaining them. And then after the conversation, she took me up to her trophy cabinet, which yeah. her husband had built for her, which- You posted a photo of that. Yeah, yeah, I shared a photo of that on Twitter with her permission and- this was before she won the Nobel, but it was just like full of all of the most prestigious awards in science and humanitarianism. It's a bit so surreal. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. In, in your episode with Richard Rhodes, I mean, I figure I hadn't necessarily planned to go through them in order, but we're kind of going through them in order. So let's just sort of keep, keep sure. going through. All right. um, in your episode with Richard Rhodes, I think you, I mean, we're in the kind of same generation. I'm only a couple of years younger than you. And, yeah. And so when you, when you said that, um, you know, we really didn't grow up with any kind of fear of nuclear weapons, like at all. It just wasn't even yeah. on our radar. Right? right. I mean, no pun intended. <laughs> um, nice. Yeah. Uh, do you feel like that's that's changed for you now? Like, have you? I mean, have you thought about that a lot since then as being a real risk? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. What do you What do you do with that? I mean, I think it can shift your priorities as to like what a good career move is for you, like how you can improve the world. Yeah, okay. I mean, all it's really done for me is is like maybe I want to have more guests on about that topic to try and raise awareness about it. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. 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 You had a couple of kind of wow moments in that interview. Like literally you you were saying wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what what was it kind of that stood out most for you? Um, or what you know, what what was the thing that really blew your blew your mind there? <laughs> I think, again, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that was bad. Bad choice of words, sorry. I think, I think, I, I mightn't have actually learned this in the interview because I probably probably already picked it up in the research yeah. preparing for the interview. But I think just learning about the, the firebombing of Tokyo in March 1945 mm-hmm. where about 100,000 people died in one night and about a million more were, were wounded. The Americans just dropped like incendiaries over Tokyo and created effectively a firestorm. Yeah, That was shocking because that was, I think the single most destructive act of the Second World War, worse than the bombing of Dresden, 
worse than the atomic bombings yeah. of Hiroshima, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it was interesting as well because it raises this question of like, so nu- nuclear weapons are essentially fire weapons. Yeah. They work by creating like a, a chimney of fire above a city and that, that's what wreaks the, the most destruction. You know, to what extent are they qualitatively or categorically different from the weapons that were already being used or just sort of on like an escalating gradient? And also it raises a second question, which is has the so-called long peace that we've enjoyed since World War II really been a nuclear peace? Because if things like firebombing could already be so destructive, is like the marginal deterrence between that and nuclear weapons yeah. so great that we can attribute this long piece to nuclear weapons? Uh, I don't know, but it, it raises the question. It's, it's an question. important question. Yeah, for sure. Mm. I have to think about that. Was there another moment where I was wowed that you? I know think there, of? there were three wow moments. I actually don't remember what they are. I did a bit of like textual analysis on your yeah. <laughs> your transcripts. There Control F wow. I, <laughs> um, there were three wow moments, but I, uh, off the top of my head, I don't remember what the other two were. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But that, that definitely was that was one of them. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, Richard Rhodes also said this thing about, um, it was kind of an offhanded comment, but, but he said something like, uh, if you're a specialist, you shouldn't write science, like kind of general science, because you don't know what people don't know. You're not a specialist but you're clearly very well read and you, you interview people on a wide range of topics, mm-hmm. um, which evidently you have a, a fairly, you know, decent knowledge of. Do you feel like you're, or, or that maybe you might be soon in a position where you could write on some of these topics in a way that, the, that a general audience will be able to understand better than, than maybe the specialists? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Is that something you want to do? Uh, at some point, yeah, but it's got to be the right topic and I've got to feel like, I'm burning to write about it and I have to write about it and no one else will do as good a job as me. So I guess it's just about like waiting for that topic. Like the dyads thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably better as just an essay or I can use the essay to test. Yeah. But, okay. But yeah. Yeah. I've, I've never thought about writing a book about that. <laughs> but you could. Yeah. <laughs> With the right partner. Yeah. <laughs> With the right, the right co-author. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> How much Indian classical music have you listened to since your interview with Shruti? Not a whole lot, to be honest. Um, <laughs> a little bit of Ravi Shankar. Me too. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah after the interview. I yeah, listened. yeah. Did you like it? Uh, it depends how long you want me to talk about music. For. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Um, it develops melody and rhythm a lot more than it develops harmony, but mm. I think that's just true of Indian music, mm. is that there's a much bigger focus on melody. There's some sort of interesting scales and modes that they're using. Mm. Uh, and they can sort of improvise over and tweak a little bit. Yeah. My favorite music is music that's harmonically complex. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, you know, someone like Jacob Collier, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he I like have. really pushes the boundaries on harmony. Yeah, that's yeah, the music yeah. I love. So yeah. it's not like for personal taste, it wasn't my favorite, Yeah. but I could appreciate it. Why do you like the harmonically complex stuff more? Uh, it, uh, <laughs> it makes you, well, for, I shouldn't say you, I mean, it's for me. Um, it makes me feel a lot more. It's like, yeah. wow, that is not the chord I was expecting to go there, but mm. that like really invokes some some emotion or something like that, or yeah. pulls you a certain way. Yeah. Uh, but again, I mean, that that's that's just me. What did you think? I feel that too. Yeah, 
but it's, it, it's West, it's very Western, right? Yeah. That, that harmony is the focus yeah. rather than, yeah. Yeah. Someone actually messaged me, DM'd me on Twitter yesterday saying, did Trudy give you her list of um, Indian musicians? <laughs> I actually need to get that from her. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'll get a Spotify playlist. I'll share it. Yeah, nice. On Twitter. You should you should send it in your weekly email yeah, blast. Yeah, yeah. I'll do. It's, it's, yeah. yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, I'd listen to it. Coming around to your interview that, that you said was perhaps the most underrated for the year. Mm-hmm. You at the very beginning of your interview with Peter Singer, you said um, basically to the listener, stick it out for like thirty minutes. We're going to talk about meta ethics. We're going to talk about like the thorniest, possibly the thorniest subfield of ethics. Mm-hmm. Just stick it out. Uh, I thought that was the most interesting part of the interview, by the way, was the right. first kind of 30 minutes. Yeah. Uh, th- this idea of whether, you know, there can be kind of objective morals and, and this, and, you know, esoteric morality, which got a little bit of uh, publicity on Twitter. And yeah. <laughs> th- I thought that was a lot of fun. But do you know if listeners really did listen to the end or if a lot of people kind of dropped off a- after th- the first part? I think I, I had like normal retention. Okay. Yeah. So it didn't really make a difference. The, well, maybe, but, but maybe it did. Cause maybe I, it did. I, I said that thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't know what the counterfactual is. That's exactly. true. Exactly. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. But not everyone is like you. Yeah. Okay. There might be people who, who don't uh, go for that kind of more. Sure. Abstruse philosophical stuff. Cause then I think you talked later on about animal liberation because it's a 50 year or yep. something like that. Yeah. Um, now you you first, again, I'm going to go back to your blog cause you know, you, when, when you're, well, look, let me go on a slight tangent here when you're prepping for an interview with someone yeah. you get to read everything they've put out and these people have put out heaps and heaps of stuff when i was prepping for this interview i don't have any of joe's writings to to, to read through i only have the podcast to listen to and and the, the few things that you've put up on your yeah well i mean yeah. you found the few writings i did, that I, did I did have, yeah. so so you read animal liberation back uh i think it's january 9th of 2017 was yeah. when you started this book yeah i'm gonna quote you now on what you you said in your blog which oh, was God. <laughs> which was, uh, I, I'm suffering from cognitive dissonance as I write this. Uh, few omnivores could read Animal Liberation from pages one to 248 uh, and refuse to change their diet. Yeah. Have you resolved that cognitive uncertainty now? Where, what, what are you feeling? I haven't. And this is, this is just <laughs> evidence that I'm a, a selfish and imperfect person. No, actually, so I have, but in, in modest ways. Okay. So... The I guess the point I was making is like his logic is is just like watertight. Yeah, it is he just really like anti. drags you to his conclusion, <laughs> kicking and screaming. So I mean, there are a few changes I've made after that. These are probably laughable to true like animal rights activists or vegans. I I don't know. So I never eat veal because the way of, veal yeah. calves are raised is is really inherently cruel. I never buy caged eggs. Um, yeah, I mean, there are certain like small things I did where it was like, I just don't de- derive enough pleasure from this and I know that it causes so much suffering. Like I'm just not going to eat that kind of stuff. But am I still a meat eater? Yes. <laughs> and yeah, it's it's like one of my you big- You just lost like 20% of your living. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like one of my big, um, I guess, failings where I'm just like, I know that uh, I I ought not to do this and I still do. <laughs> So you're operating on some kind of utilitarian calculus then, uh, internally at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, but I, I don't think you need to be a utilitarian to necessarily come to that conclusion. Okay, how so? Couldn't you 
But couldn't you justify not eating meat on like virtue ethics or deontological grounds? I suppose like if you had a, yeah, I mean definitely on deontological grounds. Yeah. I don't know about virtue ethics. Then it would be like you, you were, there it would be more like gradations of how moral it was for you not to eat the meat. Like for somebody who really struggles not to eat meat to choose mm. not to eat meat, right? That would be like more ethical than someone who just goes, ah, it's not really so hard for me to, to not yeah. eat meat, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, fair enough. Do you eat meat? I do. Yeah. yeah. But then again, I'm not a utilitarian. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Still. <laughs> the, the, before we get to Steven Pinker and David Deutsch, mm-hmm. uh, we should touch on Raghuram Rajan, uh, that, that interview. Yep. Uh, I, I actually, I mean, I think this is because I'm, I'm an economist. I actually didn't have any questions for you on that interview. I thought you did, did a stellar job. Um, and, and it was, I mean, I think it was probably one of the most comfortable topics for you right. as an interviewer yep. and something that has been talked about on the podcast a lot, right? I mean, housing, right? You, you've done a lot on, on yep. housing, a lot on the, the GFC. I guess you didn't talk about housing in particular, but the GFC, which is obviously related to, to, to housing. Yep. Um, and even central banking and, and um, monetary policy and these sorts of things. Um, but I guess, I, I, yeah, I just wanted to ask, were, were there any sort of behind the scenes things that happened that, that you want to share from that interview or... Nothing, nothing in particular. I mean, I could go on a riff about the pr- the importance of the pre-interview for like getting good answers. Yeah, do it. Go on, go on a riff. Yeah, we're, we're only going to do this, you know. Once. <laughs> the no, I, I won't because it kind of it's kind of mean <laughs> to it's mean to someone. Like, okay, do you have to name them in order to do the riff? I guess not. So I like the the I guess like assistant or, or whoever who I yeah. was like corresponding with around like organizing the room at the booth school of business yeah left me waiting for like 40 minutes nice. uh because she just didn't check her email or something and so then i was like 15 minutes late because of that even though i was like half an hour early <laughs> in reality and it that would have seemed rude to him yeah and so like it's it's super important to have the guest like respecting you and feeling really good and relaxed before the interview even begins and just like how you convey yourself, how you carry yourself before you start recording. Yeah. And I didn't actually correct that. I didn't like properly apologize and explain the situation until after the interview. Should have done that before. Oh, okay. So I feel like um, every little thing you do um, is necessary but not sufficient to making the interview go well. Yeah. There's um, always noise. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. But yeah, I mean, what, what else can I say that's maybe more interesting to people than that? But that was interesting. I meant to draw that out of you. That's that's my job. But, oh, okay. <laughs> but, no, that, yeah. Did, did you? Could you feel the tension like at the beginning of the interview? Did you feel like he was a bit like, oh, who is this guy who's <laughs> wasting nope. fifteen minutes of my time? <laughs> Maybe he, he's just he's such a good guy <laughs> yeah. that I, if if he felt that he kind of like pushed through it. I also asked him a question at the start. That maybe to try and offset that. Yeah, okay. I don't ask this every time, but but this is a little trick. Sometimes at the beginning, I, I ask people, "What would make this a great use of your time?" Like, nice at the end of the interview, if you're really happy with this, what what does that look like? So I asked him that. So that probably offset the lateness by showing him that, like, you know, I, I care about him. I'm not just like some guy take, <laughs> taking him for granted. What did he say? Uh. If you remember, I don't. Remember. I don't think it was anything like super surprising. I think it was just like, 
At the end, though, he did say he enjoy, he really enjoyed. He was doing some like public dialogue the following week on similar topics. Okay, and he really enjoyed being challenged. Like it, it helped him prepare. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So the 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 final interview for the year, I think, certainly had a different flavor than any of your other interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because, in a sense, it was less of an interview and more of a moderation. Yeah. Uh, now, you you said that you were feeling a little bit disappointed about this. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I mean, you kind of don't, talk, I mean, this is an exaggeration, but you kind of don't talk for the first 40 minutes. Yeah. Um, t- tell, tell me a little bit about what happened there and, and maybe why you were feeling disappointed. Yeah, so obviously this was the dialogue between Steven Pinker and David Deutsch, yeah. their first ever public dialogue, both the previous guests of the podcast. It was actually a listener of the show who gave me this idea. Wow. So someone emailed me back in August or September and said, you should do this. Yeah. Um, there's an opportunity here. And I was like, that's a, that's a pretty good idea. So I organized it and, and maybe I'll just take a quick digression to point out like how much actually goes into that. Yeah, like please. I'm not just talking about like scheduling and getting two yeah. people together at three different time zones. Like I had to get up at like very early my time to do it, but also getting the equipment to them, getting them to use the equipment, right? video, audio stuff so that the quality is sufficient that the audience will actually listen okay and you're trying to coordinate all of this over email and it's like the last thing either of them wants to do you have to be like super tactful and thread the needle very carefully so so there was a lot that went into that and if people watch the interview they'll and compare it with other interviews david deutsch has done yeah um if they look at the video you'll notice that it's like the best quality video that anyone has managed to squeeze out well of done. David Deutsch. And it's good. The audio and video is really good for Pinker as well. Yeah. Um, so like none of that happens easily. Um, and this is where like soon enough, I would just love to have a team where someone handles that for me because context switching between trying to read up on the grammar explosion in kids so yeah. that I can like create some kind of clash between that and Deutsch's idea of universal explainers. <laughs> Context switching with that kind of research and then like, okay, what are the gain level settings on the Shure MV7 <laughs> mic that I've sent to Pinker and like, yeah. should I ask him to right. sit here Can or there? Can you turn the knob a little bit to the left? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like what time of day, like how is the sun going to be hitting his face in Boston? So should I send him like a panel light? Like that's just stuff I ideally don't want to have to worry about. <laughs> um, so, so, so there was a lot involved there to get the quality that we got in the end. But I feel like I was, I mean, a lot of people enjoyed it in terms of the actual dialogue. I was really disappointed with it relative to what I thought its potential could be. I think I needed to moderate way more heavily. What prevented that, at least in the first part of the conversation was my software freezing. So like I listened back to the recording. It was like so painful. Every 10 to 15 minutes you hear Stephen Dave go like, Joe, is Joe still there? Like, Joe, where have you gone? Because my- I never would have guessed that. The thing we were using was like crashing. So I couldn't even track the conversation intellectually, let alone interrupt. Eventually I messaged my girlfriend. She brought her phone downstairs and I hotspotted to her phone. Nice. So that's how I fix that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, yeah, I guess it was just like overloaded the the internet connection with everyone using their videos. I, I should have foreseen that. Like I should have done a test the day before. Anyway. But yeah, I do feel like I do feel like it was under moderated. I do feel like a lot of people who enjoyed it probably don't know what they were missing. And like How there'll be they? yeah, there'll be a lot of comments on YouTube which is like, well done on like yeah. staying out of the conversation. Like that's the best thing you could have done. 
I'm not trying to impress those kind of people. The thing is you get trapped in like a local maxima where it's like super interesting to them to see David, David Deutsch yeah, and Stephen Pinker having like a dialogue around some topic. But it's not a global maxima and I should be directing them to the global maxima around like what are the most interesting things we could be discussing. Okay. So what did you feel like you, you missed out from that global maxima? Like were, were there things that you wanted to press them on that you didn't get to or? Yeah, there were, but, but it, I'm not sure how I should have handled these because these are, I think like one of the problems with my prep was like, I was thinking a lot about, okay, what are different questions I can ask them either separately or together yeah. as if this was an interview where a dialogue has like a different dynamic. One thing in particular was missing from the discussion of AGI. Mm -hmm. And then another thing was missing from the discussion of like differential technological development. So the yep. thing missing from the discussion of AGI, which was more relevant to Pinker, was just like Bostrom's idea of instrumental convergence. Okay. Different agents who will... like. So, okay, firstly, draw a distinction between terminal goals, the thing you're ultimately trying yeah. to get, and then instrumental goals, things that will help you get Typical. there. There are a lot of instrumental goals we, that we can reasonably expect different agents with completely different terminal goals to, to ultimately converge on. So things like self-preservation, mm -hmm. resource acquisition, developing technology. And moreover, when we're training these models, we might inadvertently train sub-goals in them that are opaque to us. Sure. Um, and so I feel like that that was kind of like a core issue missing from the discussion that I, I wanted to put to Pinker. The second thing was one of the questions I asked them was just like, can you name any technologies for which we would want to halt or slow mm. the development? Um, emphatically, yes. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. where I was coming from with this is like David Deutsch has this, it's almost like the civilizational version of the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. <laughs> it's kind of like let a thousand flowers bloom. Uh -huh. The people on the side of progress and reason, their asset is good ideas, the scientific method, speed, progress. So like ultimately we just have to like cross our fingers and hope that we beat the enemies of the enlightenment. Mm -hmm. But what I wanted to put to them was just this idea that attack beats defense. Mm -hmm. So there's this like, and maybe you could ground it in some kind of like first principles explanation around entropy or something, but you can think of like destructive technologies that you can't easily undo or prevent or offset. Yeah. So like the, the ultimate example is a civilization that can create black holes and just launch them at you. <laughs> there's no wall or anything you can build to like defend against that. So yeah, there, there are just like some technologies that are like, so destructive that you can't like easily like undo that damage uh -huh. and or prevent them and then that is just like compounded by the fact that all you need is just like one bad act or one incompetent person and and you're screwed so for for agi policy what do you want me to take away from that well i guess like that was in the context of a broader discussion um, but I suppose it does apply to to AGI, and I don't know. Like, I don't have very formed thoughts on this yet. I, it's something I need to think a lot more about. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that humans are really just Turing machines? The, uh, I guess my my default position is yes, because I suppose I I like I lean more towards materialism Physicalist. than yeah, yeah than dualism. 
Um, but I would be, I'm like totally open to the possibility that there's something like special about the biological substrate that gives us our abilities. Yeah. That was obviously a point of tension between Steven Pinker and David Deutsch, which is that Steven sort of saw this as being an undecidable thing. And David Deutsch was, was saying, well, if, if you're a physicalist, then this is it, right? There's, it's just computation and yeah. more computation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if we keep going down, we just hit more computation, yeah. maybe at the quantum level yeah. or something else, but yeah. <laughs> And people, people on Twitter and I think YouTube like bashed Pinker for that. Yeah. Kind of assuming that he was being somewhat naive. But even if he didn't make it in these words, I think there's, there's actually like a deeper point there around the emergent phenomena that lead to human brains and... Consciousness. Consciousness. Sentience. Mm. Do you think you'll do another moderation like that again? I mean, never say never. Like <laughs> I guess I've, I've learned a lot about how to do them well. Maybe but in I, person next time? Absolutely in person. Yeah. Like so difficult to moderate virtually because everyone is interrupting everyone else. When you're doing it in person, you can respond to the subtle cues in body language and micro expressions mm. of each other. And so it's much more easy to interrupt yeah. and to moderate. But yeah, I guess it I'm, I guess it just depends on what the opportunities are. I don't have any planned and I'm, I generally much prefer just a one-on-one -on -one interview. For sure. Would you do a debate? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that episode was in some ways, it kind of turned into a bit of a debate, at least yeah. in the first part. Yeah. Um, do you have any like debates you'd like to see? Uh, yeah, actually I do. Um, I'd like to see uh, Judea Pearl and um, Guido and Benz or someone like that mm -hmm. on causality. Okay. Um, yeah, wow. I, I posted something about this on Twitter a while ago that, that I mean, in economics, uh, econometricians kind of think they have this good handle on how to identify causality, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we have methods for doing this, uh, very good methods for, for doing this, like randomized controlled trials and these sorts of things. But uh, there's this sort of theoretical computer science uh, field of, of, of people who really think that, that you need models of causality which they, they model these as kind of Bayesian networks or directed acyclic graphs. I don't know if you know much about this, but they there's been these like blog post wars between these these two people right. where like where Pearl posts a, a, a blog up and then, you know, Inben's comments and then they have this back and forth where it seems like they're getting nowhere. And I'd just love to see somebody have them on and sit them down and talk to them. If you I don't know if you're familiar with either of their work. I am. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, there you go. There's my Guido there's my, won the Nobel Prize last year. He did, yeah. Yeah, yeah with yeah. um Angriest. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a great one. Yeah. I mean, I'll think about take, that. Take it under advisement. <laughs> Wasn't expecting to give you my recommendations today, but there you go. Very good. Well, why don't we wrap up by talking about 2024 and mm -hmm. maybe the future of, of the, the podcast? Yeah. So um, one of the nice things that you were able to do this year uh, was record video. You posted a lot of shorts online as well of mm -hmm. like, like little clips of, of just kind of key moments um, and then for the first time in the, in the Stephen Pinker and David Deutsch episode, you, you had a full video recording, right? Which you said, as you just said, was very difficult to organize. Uh, can we expect full video coming in, in 2024 and onwards? Yes. Very good. The reason being, I think it's, I think it's like a, but probably like the biggest growth lever for the show, mm -hmm. just getting picked up by the YouTube and X algorithm Yeah. and the ability to publish clips that go viral. Yeah. Did the video of the interview with, with Pinker and Deutsch get a lot of attention on YouTube? Uh, yeah, a moderate amount. Maybe it's up to like 20-ish thousand views mm -hmm. so far. 
but then more than that on on Twitter. Nice. Oh no, about the same on Twitter. So n- not bad, not crazy, but not bad. It's pretty good. Yeah, we'll see what happens next year. Yeah. Can you tell us any guests that will be appearing in twenty twenty four? Have you got anything locked in yet? I don't actually have zero locked in. Wow. Um, which is nice because I don't need to prepare for anything yet. I'm going to use the next few weeks just to write some of these essays nice. and blog posts I've been talking about. I have people I know that I want to get on, but I don't like talking about it before it happens because <laughs> if it doesn't happen, you don't want to jinx it. <laughs> yeah. And if it doesn't happen, people get disappointed. Yeah. yeah. Sure. But it also might put more pressure on those people to, to come on. Oh, that's never a good way to get someone <laughs> to come on. <laughs> Blackmail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably a good point. Um, another exciting thing happening for you next year is that you and your girlfriend are moving to London. Yeah. Yeah. How, how did that come about and what, what effect is that going to have on the podcast? Yeah. So it's driven by the, the general intuition that we need to locate ourselves in a bigger network of potential collaborators, whether that's for the podcast or other projects. Mm. It will definitely help the podcast because I will be closer to guests in both the US and the UK. It's a long journey doing those trips from Australia. Um, So we're going to get a whole year of Brits. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, But what's the, what's the red eye flight from London to New York? It's seven hours or something like that. Yeah. I thought it was a bit longer, but maybe you're right. Maybe it's longer. Still way better than going. Oh, way better. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so so that's that's what we're doing, and I think it's going to be a good move. Sydney's going to miss you. Yeah, I'll, I'll be back. Yeah, okay. One day. When when, you, when do you go? Uh, we actually haven't locked in an exact date yet, but it's like February next year. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Sooner rather than later. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I I wanted to ask you about your your writings, but we've already talked about that, so I'm I'm kind of happy to wrap things up there. It's been fun reflecting with you. Um, maybe maybe before I, I say let's let's end things, are there any kind of take homes from the year or, or behind the scenes things that you really wanted to, to share that you didn't get a chance to? Yeah, there's one. So I yeah, feel like ahead, this is this is the, the biggest thing I've maybe not necessarily learned because I always knew it subconsciously but or implicitly, but maybe this is the biggest lesson that's been reinforced to me as an interviewer, mm. but is to you, you have to morally deserve the guest's best material so you have to convey status to the guest, whether that's in like how you come across in your emails or how you carry yourself at the beginning of the interview, how you demonstrate the level of research you've done through your like questioning and the context and preface that you attach to your questions, like showing them that you've done a lot of work and you're like, you're the kind of person who deserves their best information <laughs> is like a, a really important but underappreciated way to make interviews go well. That, that was something I, I reflected on a lot this year. Yeah. It's funny. We talked about this when, when we talked about me doing this, yeah. uh, this interview, yeah. which is that it, it kind of seems like a big signaling game, which is like it is. You, you have to prove to them that, that you're worthy of their time or something. Yeah. And, and well, not, I mean, you're saying not just worthy of their time, but worthy of good answers. Worthy of good answers, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Podcast is just all one big signaling game. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> life is just one, one big signaling yeah. game. Uh, cool. Well, thank you, Joe. And uh, from all the ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, swagmen <laughs> and swagettes, keep up the good work. Thanks so much. Great questions. Really enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to read the episode transcript or support the show financially in 2024, head to my website, jnwpod.com. That's jnwpod, 
www.thinkandgrowthpodcast.com. I hope you have a happy and prosperous start to 2024. I will speak to you sometime early in the new year. Until then, ciao.